The Tour is part of the Osiris Podcast Network, connecting you to music, artists, and culture. Hear it all at OsirisPod.com. This episode of The Tour is brought to you by Canova Communications, leaders in developing content on every platform. Visit CanovaCommunications.com. A musician may be able to walk away, but only till a creative burst makes them come alive again. I think it was hormones. Like I, I felt like a teenager again where I had all this pent-up stuff that I felt like I wanted to address. And the way that I kind of work that stuff out is through music. Hi, and welcome to the tour. I'm your host, Ted Canova. Lisa Bastoni is a folk singer who's staging a second act. With New England roots, Lisa took the stage at the Newport Folk Festival, but not how you think. Her Bob Dylan karaoke performance remarkably connected her to Al Cooper, who in 1965 was on the Newport stage playing organ when Dylan showed the courage to unplug. Lisa claimed her own courage and started playing for spare change, busking on subway platforms, which introduced her to the Boston folk scene. She recorded albums and together with Naomi Summers formed the duo Gray Sky Girls. Then one day, her journey dramatically shifted gears. Lisa quit music, became a teacher, then a mom, and didn't pick up her guitar for years. Instead, she found herself working in a cubicle. Ten years later, a spark ignited, and Lisa was writing again. In what she calls a manic period, she was staying up till 2 a.m. reclaiming her musical identity. This could be Kansas in the middle of August with the sunflowers and the heat. Adding the firepower of Grammy-nominated producer Felix McTeague and recording with the renowned musicians Kelly Hogan and the Mastersons. The result was an exceptional album in 2017, The Wishing Hour, remarkable in weaving stories of lost love, hope, and redemption. I sat down with Lisa in a park in Somerville, Massachusetts, not far from her favorite busking venues. We talked about her return to music while raising small kids, sleeping in her car at scary rest stops while on tour, inheriting her grandmother's half-written songs, and sorting through uncomfortable questions about her life. And the time she came face to face with Bob Dylan in Italy. All right, Lisa, today is a special birthday. Do you know whose birthday it is? Of course, I celebrate it every year. It's Bob Dylan's birthday. He is really the person, one of the people who inspired you to get into music. There's definitely a connection. I spent a lot of time with my grandparents growing up and my grandmother was a huge fan of Emmylou Harris. So she had everything that Emmylou Harris sang on, including that Bob Dylan album, Desire. So I remember hearing that. That was the first Dylan record that I heard. And then I was taking guitar lessons and I, one of my guitar teachers said, oh, you know, you really should hear his first album. So I listened to the first one. And there's that song, Baby Let Me Follow You Down, where Bob Dylan says, uh, this one I learned from Rick Von Schmidt. First heard this from uh, Rick Von Schmidt. I met him one day in the Green Pastures of Harvard University. I met him one day in the Green Pastures of uh, Harvard University. 
I love that. And then it turned out that my grandmother was friends with Eric von Schmidt, who lived in Westport, where I grew up. And so we would go to his house for music parties, and it was just this incredible connection to that that little moment of uh, music history. And he was just a phenomenal artist and musician. When you say met him. I met Eric von Schmidt, but I did pass Bob Dylan one day in Florence, Italy. This is a brush with greatness, as Letterman used to say. While I was studying in Florence, it was the last day of classes, and I had a guitar that I was borrowing, and I was walking with a guitar to my class. My teacher asked me to play a song on the last day. At like seven o'clock in the morning, I'm walking to school. I see this figure walking towards me in the opposite direction, and he's wearing a sweatshirt. He's got the aviator glasses on and the salt and pepper curly hair peeking out. And as we get closer, I notice he's kind of slowing down a little bit. He lowers his glasses, these shocking bright blue eyes look at me. We like slow down as we pass each other and I swear to God, it was Bob Dylan. And I like send an email to my friend. I was like, I think I just saw Bob Dylan, oh my God. And he was like, that probably was him because he was playing in Italy. What do you think he was thinking when he lowered his glasses, Lisa? I think he was thinking, who is this young Italian woman walking down the street with a guitar at seven o'clock in the morning? You weren't just a Dylan fan growing up. You actually went in front of a microphone at a very famous venue and performed some Dylan. Share that story. This is the highlight of my career so far is I saw a notice in the Boston Phoenix that there was going to be a Bob Dylan karaoke contest at the Newport Folk Festival. And I drove down and I got up on the stage and I sang the song Isis. I said, I got no money, man. He said, that ain't necessary. And I won the contest. That's tremendous to think that you went to the famous location where Dylan unplugged. (laughs) It was wild. It was just like this really cool experience. And I went you know, back to work at the art gallery the next day and I was bragging about my win. And there was a reporter from the Boston Globe who happened to be there interviewing my boss. And he said, oh, you're a Bob Dylan fan. You should come with me to this show tomorrow night. I'm going to see Al Cooper perform at the House of Blues. So I said, sure, you know, I'd love to go. And that's how I ended up uh, working for Al Cooper. Let's get to September 11th because that seems to be a pivotal time where music was stirring in you. And within eight days, you took a bold move in your life. You know, everything just felt so fragile in those days. The feeling then was just, you know, fear and how vulnerable we are. And for me, it was a moment where I thought, you know, I could I could spend a few more months following Al Cooper around with a garbage bag, helping him declutter his basement and driving him around town into the supermarket. Or I could take this time to make a go of it and go out there and play in the subway and just play some quiet songs for people and see if that helps us feel again like it's okay to make music. How did you drum up the courage to do it? I really struggle with shyness. When you're on stage, there's a role that you play and I feel a lot more comfortable just getting up there and singing a song. So I think getting out and playing in the subway helped a lot, just overcoming that feeling of nobody asked you to come down here and sing a song, but I just felt like I had to do it anyway. I've busked myself with my trumpet. And that first time that you bring out your stand and your sheet music and open the case 
and think, what in the world am I doing? I had such a good first experience with busking. I played for an hour or so and I made $80 like quickly and it was much more than I was making. Sorry, Al Cooper, but it was much more per hour than I was making at my day job. So I thought, all right, that's it. This is what I'm doing now. Little did I know that it was not always going to be like that. My first day was $144. And nice. my, my friends like to say people were paying to have you stop. <laughs> <laughs> it's so unpredictable. And if you go out there with a certain dollar amount in mind, like, all right, I need to make $100 so that I can make rent this month, it doesn't happen. If you're thinking about the money, it just doesn't work. Busking gave you the confidence then to go and do some living room sessions and record a couple of CDs and an EP. Tell us about that period of your life. Well, the other buskers that I talked to said you really need to have a CD because anybody who's going to give you a dollar probably would give you ten dollars if you had a CD that they could buy. This sounds like the busking school of <laughs> economics. <laughs> yeah so I made uh, my first album was an album of Christmas songs and it was right around Christmas time. I made it really quickly in my friend's living room and I put that out just in time for Christmas to sell on the subway. And at this time you weren't just busking. You ended up getting some gigs around town. Yeah, I was playing places like the old Kendall Cafe and the the living room albums that I made, they were getting some airplay, much to my surprise, on some local radio stations, so that helped too. Is this the time that you hooked up with Naomi Summers and formed Grey Sky Girls? Yeah, I met Naomi at a bar in Cambridge. Uh, I heard her voice from across the room and I knew right away that I had to be friends with her. Lights on a harbor. And we got together and started singing and performing. They don't shine for me. And one of the great songs on the album that you cut was Sea of Heartbreak. That song is such a standard in the bluegrass Americana folk world. The sea of heartbreak, lost love, loneliness. When we first started singing together, I didn't have much experience singing harmonies, and she's so good at it. She would teach me all the parts. Her dad is Phil Rosenthal from the seldom scene, and so she also introduced me to a whole catalog, a whole repertoire of um, bluegrass songs. Well, there's a video of you singing Sea of Heartbreak. This scratchy video is on YouTube. <laughs> it almost looks like something from a time capsule, but it's 11 years ago. You look back at that video, what goes through your mind knowing what's happened in these 11 years? Oh, I have such nostalgia for those times, and I wish it was a little bit better quality so we could see it and hear it better. I like the fact that it's a scratchy video. It has such a contrast of the times, and it kind of puts you in this frozen moment of your career. It's especially poignant to me now to think about that because that was right before Naomi moved to Germany and got married and we both, you know, settled down and started families and it's just funny to me now to think about how much our lives changed after that concert. Well, you had said that you got to a point in life that maybe there's more. You walked away. You fully quit. You didn't pick up the guitar for eight or nine years. I got pretty burnt out on it. Like when Naomi moved away, I didn't really feel like doing the solo songwriter thing. 
anymore. I went back to school to become a teacher. So I was in school full time and working full time. I had a job in a cubicle and there just wasn't time to pick up the guitar. I didn't have any energy for it. I taught for a couple of years and then I had my kids. And so I really just wasn't, I didn't have time. Is it so simple to say your life changed while you went on one of those walks with your kids in the double baby stroller and something just hit you? It was, it was really like that. I was invited to perform on a radio show and I had to relearn all of my old songs. And so I was walking around with the kids in the stroller and trying to remember all the lyrics and then going to play that show and then realizing like these songs don't really feel like where I am now at all. I don't know who this person is who's singing about, you know, being broke and unemployed in Austin. Like, I'm not there anymore. And then it became sort of like a hormonal thing. I've been saying recently, like, I think it was hormones. Like, I, I felt like a teenager again where I had all this pent-up stuff that I felt like I wanted to address. And the way that I kind of work that stuff out is through music and I felt like really grateful to kind of stumble back into it again in that way. You know, we work through our stuff <laughs> through having our kids. Yeah. Did you feel that being a mother put those emotions on the front burner? Absolutely. It was so much to process and I have to say I don't know that I adjusted very well to becoming a mother after having a whole experience of being an independent adult for many years. To, to switch gears so drastically to being in service to these tiny, beautiful humans all day, every day. It was a, a huge shift for me. But then you had a creative burst. How did that creative process work for you? I was so grateful to, again, have that feeling of, I have to do this. I have to find a way to make this work. So, you know, I'd be with the kids all day, do the mom thing, and then put them to bed and I wanted to stay up all night. I would stay up till, till midnight or one or two o'clock in the morning just to have that time to feel connected with my own identity. Again, separate from being a mother, you know, my identity as a songwriter, just being back in touch with it was, was worth the sleep deprivation. And you started writing. I was just writing about what I was feeling. One of the first songs that I wrote was a song called Remember Me. I just want to get out there. I want to hit the road. I want to get away from myself a little bit and get back in touch with myself as the freewheeling songwriter. <laughs> Remember me so I am free. So did you have in your mind that the things that you were writing during this creative burst as the kids are sleeping, that this would become an album? Well, at first I thought, you know, I'd like to get back to playing the local spots again. And I'm going to need a new demo to do that. I wasn't even thinking about an album. I just didn't want to send out my same old CDs from 10 years before. So I really just thought maybe I'll record a few songs for a demo. I'm curious during that year as you're making this transition back to the singer-songwriter, what you did with doubts that would come into your mind. Well, it was sort of a manic period of maybe kind of like that expansive thinking of like, I'm going to do this again. It's going to be great. And so I had like three brand new songs written and I reached out to Felix McTeague, 
who had written to me maybe eight years before to say, you know, would you want to make a record? And at the time I said, you know, I'm, I, I quit, sorry, I'm not doing this anymore. But then when my kids were one and three and I had three songs, I wrote to him again. <laughs> What would you say, remember me yeah. a decade ago? I was this up-and-comer that you took an interest in? <laughs> yeah, I said, I don't know if you remember me, but I think I might like to talk to you about, about recording. And he wrote back, you know, within 15 minutes, I think. He was like, yeah, let's do this. What a reinforcement. What a beautiful <laughs> moment right there. Let's talk about the wishing hour. In this town, it was written with a boyhood crush on your mind. Yeah, there was a, a boy who worked at the pizza shop who played blues guitar. Down by the river, there's a place where we can go. You can play me, Robert Johnson. Tell me everything you know. How did you learn to play the blues in this town is sort of, it works both ways. He learned how to play the blues somehow in a suburban town in Connecticut. And I learned, I learned about pain and heartbreak in that town. So that song I wrote using a particular writing exercise that I got from Linda Barry, where you go through and basically make a list of all the sensory things that you remember associated with a particular story. And you Sometimes in the writing process, you stumble upon a rhyme that just works out in a really cool way. I wish I could say, you know, all I did was transcribe the actual experience, but that was just a happy accident. I have been gone. Your grandmother, as we mentioned, was such an important person in your life, and you wrote the song, It's the Staying That Hurts. She was sick for a long time, and she really wanted to be in her home when the time came she was in hospice. And, you know, my mom said, you should come down and come, come see Nanny because I think this is, this is it. And I just remember pulling into the driveway and hearing the sound of the gravel under the wheels. Turn on the lights I'm walking through sweet You know, it was her time and she'll be released from the pain of of what she's experiencing now, and we're the ones who are left with the pain of missing, missing her. So it's the staying that hurts. It's the staying that hurts. There's a song that I just have on repeat. Can you guess which song that is? No, I, <laughs> tell me. It's Wichita. I know the song was inspired by you and Naomi traveling around the country, but it really has this beat as if it is a train chugging along the tracks. We could go this way, we could go that way, it makes no difference now. It was a way to travel without leaving my house. That song, I remember writing it on a piece of paper as I was pushing the double stroller. I really, literally was making a list of the things that I was seeing in our neighborhood. Yard sale signs and bathtub Jesus. I am looking for redemption in these dusty streets. 
Well, after the power of Wichita, Ink and Needles is that flavor change. Song written by Diane Cluck. That was a song that I, I hadn't heard before. Someone's Ink and Needles, written skin riddles. Felix McTeague sent it to me. He produced the album and he said, I just always really like this song and why don't we include some like really obscure cover? Why don't we try this one? And I just loved it. I so related to that line. The body does tattoo itself with old age and abuse. I felt that. I don't need ink and needles to write me my excuse. The body does tattoo itself with old age and abuse. Weightless is a song you wrote for your daughter, who you've said was terrified of the water. But one day she just got the courage, kind of the courage that you had to busk. And she had the courage to jump into the water. Yeah, she just jumped right in. It was hot enough that she she had to. She couldn't help herself. It was a hot summer Sunday. You were walking with your brother. A friend of yours kind of blew your mind when he said that Weightless is kind of the song about you. Yeah, that really did blow my mind. That's another thing that I think about when I'm singing that song. I feel so motivated to do music in part because I want to model for my kids that if there's something that they feel passionate about, they should go for it. That song also has a line that starts to touch on the struggle you have maybe as a working mom. If I wasn't tied to you, tension that I feel between myself as a mother and myself as myself. I would like to sometimes escape the responsibility of being a parent, knowing that that's impossible, except in music sometimes there's a sense that I feel like I'm just there as myself and somebody else is taking care of the kids in that moment. I don't have to worry about that. I can just be fully present in what I'm doing. And at the time that I wrote that song, I didn't quite have that yet. I was not really performing out yet. I was kind of just trying to find my way back to it. Finding your way back to it and working through some things comes out in Remember Me. Hey, Miss 22, I still remember you. Hey, Miss 22. Yeah, it was at an open mic. There was a woman who was probably in her early 20s and she was on tour coming through Boston from somewhere in the Midwest, I think. And we were just talking about you know, how her tour was going and everything. And I just felt like this overwhelming jealousy. Oh, <laughs> really? It's like, I remember being your age and doing this thing that you're doing right now. And there were a lot of specifics of crashing on a friend of a friend's couch. When I would go on tour, I never had money. <laughs> I would sometimes sleep in my car at scary rest stops. Or, you know, if I was lucky, somebody would say, oh, you should call my friend or my friend of a friend of a friend's. You can stay on their couch. Sleeping on the couch of a friend. Do you know much about Josh Ritter? I have a huge, I shouldn't say this, never mind. I was gonna say I have a huge crush on Josh Ritter. As do I. And I hear Josh Ritter in Rabbit Hole. Do you? I had never really thought about that, but I I am flattered that you, that you hear that. And I'm happy for the first time in a long time. 
in a certain light, he's got a new lover, and he says he's happy for the first time in a long time. And in Rabbit Hole, you really have put a past love on the shelf, not to return to. Riding on the breeze and I thought of you For the first time In what felt like centuries It's a sad song in some ways, but it's also, there's a little bit of humor in it and that I'm not slipping down that rabbit hole again from the perspective of way down in the rabbit hole and just listing all these very vivid memories. There'll be no walk down memory lane There'll be no midnight call forget your first true love and you do have to just file it away and then every once in a while maybe you'll you'll think about that person or maybe something will trigger a memory when you're not really expecting it for me it was um just walking through the cvs parking lot there was like a waft of warm air from a truck that reminded me of california <laughs> and that that kind of started started the, the memories flowing as we look to a second album there's a thing called the difficult second album syndrome have you heard that before no but now i'm a little nervous what is it back in 1981 elvis costello coined this phrase you have 20 years to write your first album and you have six months to write your second one <laughs> i'm under no such pressure <laughs> well you've already written a series of albums that you kind of put out of circulation but you've got a second album that you're working on and one of the things that spurred this comes from your grandmother, that you came across songs, or at least titles of songs that she had stowed away. After my grandmother died, I inherited her guitar along with a bag of songs that she learned how to play. And I thought it was just covers because when I was a teenager, I would go through that bag and we would learn songs together. And it was all Johnny Cash, Bob Dylan, Donovan, Joni Mitchell, it was all songs that she learned how to play, and I thought that was all that was in the bag, but when I inherited the bag, I realized that there was a little folder marked Private Album Silent Words, and it was a stack of songs that she started to write but never finished. I was so moved, it took my breath away. The image of her writing these songs, probably after everybody else was asleep, much like I, I do, and the questions of why are they only half finished? Why wouldn't she at least complete them? Did anybody ever hear them? What are they about? There was evidence of maybe some personal conflict that I hadn't been aware of. You almost are looking into her diary in some ways. Yeah, it was a little bit uncomfortable almost to see, you know, I had this image of her as completely satisfied and happy and, and totally in love with with my grandfather, which I know that she was. And what are you doing with these half-completed songs that your grandmother wrote? I'm mostly just pulling lines from her songs. Like one of the songs had a, a line that's pockets full of sighs. And that became a song title for me. I am a long way from home. I got pockets full of sighs. I started to, to write more about my own experience and also writing with other people gave me a way to write about things that weren't necessarily my experience but I could imagine them to be. Is this different from the wishing hour, the process? 
Well, with the wishing hour, the path was not as clear. We just had no idea with the wishing hour that it would do anything. I could not have imagined that it would win an award or uh, be on the radio. It was just taking a chance and making the best album that we that we could. Lisa Bastoni, thank you for your time and for your tender music. Thank you so much. Lisa also combines her love for music with her love for visual arts. She draws, paints, and produces lyric videos. Picture music videos made entirely of her artwork. It's worth checking out on her website, lisabastoni.com. Well, that does it for this episode of The Tour. I hope you liked our conversation. Go ahead and share it with your friends and followers, and do me a favor, write a review in iTunes or wherever you're listening. It'll help more people find us. Thanks for listening to The Tour. This episode has been brought to you by Canova Communications, leaders in creating multi-platform content. Visit canovacommunications.com. The Tour is part of the Osiris Podcast Network, connecting you to music, artists, and culture. Hear it all at osirispod.com. And for music news, check out our partner, Relics Magazine, at relics.com. I'm your host, Ted Canova. Remember, music makes it all better. See you next time. Okay.